0: Awesome. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2, second half, B. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, And and constant friction between people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all.
1: Well, hello everyone. It's great to be with you tonight. It's great to be able to share God's word with you and uh, to be with the faithful remnant of Unichurch. It seems like everyone who sits in the front rows are the ones who've gone on the camp this week. I just good to keep up the, the, the Anglican tradition of sitting in the back row. The back's never empty in an Anglican church. Let's pray now that God would give us understanding of, your, of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that your word is living and active, that it brings understanding to the simple and light to those who are in darkness. We thank you that, is, that it is more precious than fine silver and much golds. And we pray that now it might do its work in our lives, so that we might live fruitful and profitable and worthwhile lives, to the glory of Jesus, the one who died for us. Amen. Professor Andrew Walls uh, was a, a historian of world Christianity, most recently at Liverpool Hope University. I say was because I very sadly found out this week that he died in August of this year. Uh, But many, many years ago I saw an interview with uh, Professor Walls and uh, he spoke about how all of the great world-spanning religions, where they began, there their centre still remains today. And so Professor Walls said, take Islam for example, Islam began in the Middle East and there you'll find the greatest concentration of Muslims. Uh, The centre of the Muslim world is still in the Middle East, even in the same cities as where it began. He said the same about Hinduism. Hinduism began in India, and India is still the center of world Hinduism, same true also of Buddhism. He said, "There's only one exception to this rule, only one exception, and that exception is Christianity. The geographic kind of world center of Christianity, it, it keeps moving. It never stays in the same place. And so, of course, if you you know your Bibles and you know your history, you know that the church, Christianity, it began in Jerusalem. That is where the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, where he appeared to his disciples, commissioned them to be his apostles. They first proclaimed the gospel in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And thousands upon thousands of people came and they became the church. And then, of course, as things went on, it, it didn't stay there. Uh, Very quickly, by world terms, the the centre of Christianity moved towards North Africa and towards Rome. Uh, Then a couple of centuries later, it moved towards the east and towards Constantinople, now modern-day Turkey. Uh, As time goes on, it moves back again to Western and Northern Europe. Uh, And then, for a few centuries, it was found in the global west, really being shared between England and America for quite some time. Uh, Which brings us to today. Uh, Many people would still argue that the United States is the most Christian nation on the planet, and they may have a point. But the centre of world Christianity is very rapidly moving towards the global south. It's very rapidly becoming uh, parts of of Africa and Asia and and China that are the centre of Christianity in our world today. Today, there are more Anglican Christians in Nigeria than there are people in Australia some 25 million and that's not including all the other types of Christians that are in Nigeria as well. And in China, some people have estimated that there are as many as 100 million Christians living today. The centre of world Christianity is most definitely not the Western world, it's definitely countries like this now. But what Professor Walls noted in that interview was that the thing that tends to move the centre of world Christianity is money. When Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period of time, then the radical message of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the radical message of the cross, becomes diluted and muted and is often lost. And Christianity is transmuted into a nice, safe, comfortable religion for people who just want to live respectable and good lives. And eventually Christianity becomes insignificant in those places and it moves on. And I think it was a very keen observation that he made. It would certainly explain the decline of Christianity in the West and in Australia. The Gospel moves away from wealth and from power. Even though one could argue that Christianity is one of the major contributors to the wealth and power of those nations in the first place. And I think 1 Timothy chapter 6 explains why. And I think it's really important that we all understand it. The consistent theme of this passage is the threat that wealth is To the truth of the gospel and the well-being of the church. Of how the pursuit of wealth is at odds with the pursuit of what Paul calls godliness in the book of 1 Timothy. That life that we are called on to live, that means that we commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we say and everything that we do. But the reason why wealth is such a threat to godliness is not money itself, as we will see. In fact, in in verse 17, uh, Paul is at pains to remind us that what is wealth if it is not just another good thing that God provides for us, to be enjoyed, and even verse 18, to be shared with others? No, the reason why wealth is a threat is because of our hearts. It's because of how weak we can be when it comes to money. How easily we can be mastered by it. How easily we can pursue wealth rather than pursuing godliness and a life in the imitation of the one who saved us. And really, I think Paul's goal for all this passage, really to kind of give away everything that I want to talk about in advance tonight. In this chapter, Paul is is mobilising all of his persuasive power to try and help us to redefine riches. He wants us to see that there are things more valuable in life than money and getting rich is not all it's cracked up to be. And so he wants to convince us not to pursue financial gain, but to pursue the greater gain of godliness with contentment, as he calls it in verse 6. And that's what I want for us too, tonight, as we read 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I've got three things that I want to talk to you about today, for those of you who who like to take notes, or at least just like to know when I'm going to end. First of all, I want to talk about the problem with wanting to be rich, from verses 3 to 10. I want to talk about the problem with being rich, in verses 17 to 19. And then I want to talk to us about the solution to both of those problems. Knowing what truly lasts in verses 11 to 16. But firstly then, the trouble with wanting to be rich, and really the heart of the problem is in verses 9 to 10. Have a look at them now. Very famous verses, and for many of us, very familiar verses as well. Paul says this, he says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now you'll notice immediately that Paul does stop short of saying that money is the root of all kinds of evil or that wealth itself uh, leads people into many dangers and snares. Although I've got to say, if he did say that, it would come to me as something of a relief. Because that would mean that the troubles of verses 9 to 10, of which there are a great many, would only really be a danger to those of us who are truly rich. No, Paul actually says something much worse. Paul says it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And the problem with that is we're all capable of loving money no matter how wealthy we are. We're all vulnerable to desiring wealth and the pleasures and the privileges that it can bring to us. We're all capable of doing this. And I think the temptation comes to us, particularly in our culture, because we have, by and large, allowed ourselves to be persuaded that the pursuit of money is the pursuit of happiness, that they are one and the same thing. And so it's very hard for us to believe Paul when he says that pursuing wealth will plunge people into ruin and destruction and will mean that we are pierced with many griefs. We have so often been promised and so often promised ourselves that money will solve all of our problems, mend all of our griefs and buy every happiness that we could possibly desire. Yeah, of course, you know, we're we're Christians, aren't we? So we might, you know, acknowledge that God doesn't want us to pursue riches. But it's very easy to see that as just another area of our life where we need to obey God, even if it means we're a little bit less happy in the process. Another sacrifice we make for the sake of the Gospel, and one that we can very easily resent. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that he doesn't want us to pursue riches, so don't. Uh, Paul is saying something very different. Paul is saying you would be an absolute fool to pursue riches because of the troubles it causes. And God wants to spare us the grief that comes so much more commonly than happiness, when wealth is what people spend their lives pursuing. I was trying to think of a, a good example of this too. I was trying to think of what's a, a good example of this. I'm sure that we can think of many, but actually Paul's already given us one at the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 6 in verses 3 to 5. The false teachers. If we'd read from the, the beginning of, of 1 Timothy, then we would have learned that there were a, a group of false teachers that were causing a great deal of trouble in the city of which Timothy was the pastor. And the presence of these false teachers has been one of Paul's kind of chief concerns throughout the letter. They're a dangerous group. They're a danger to themselves and they're a danger to the church. Which is why Paul reserves some very strong language for them in those verses. They are a toxic poison that is in danger of corrupting the whole household of God. Just as their own hearts and minds have been corrupted. And what motivates them in verse 5? They think that godliness, or at least their version of it, is a way to make money. They've already been seduced by the love of money. And now they're in danger of destroying the whole church. Their poisonous seed is is already spreading. And so Paul says to Timothy... He says this, he says, there's an antidote. There's something you all need to know in verses 6 to 8. You need to know this, you need to know that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul wants to say to us, you know the greatest blessing that you can have in life is that God would make you more like His Son, the Lord Jesus. And as you grow in godliness, you will grow in contentment with whatever financial situation you find yourself in. And there is nothing better in life than that. The world would like to say to you that, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins... But Paul reminds us that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. That he who has the most toys still dies and they can't take any of it with them. And so Paul says, spare yourself the trouble and pursue godliness, not financial gain. Now I feel like we need to be as practical as we possibly can at this point. Because this is a very serious warning. And the language that Paul uses, it couldn't be stronger. And so it's really important that we ask ourselves whether or not we really are in the grip of the desire to get rich. Ask ourselves whether or not godliness with contentment really is the goal of our lives. Whether our hearts are in love with money and what it can do for us. You know, and how would we know if we were? Or it might be that we find ourselves willing to compromise on absolute honesty and integrity, either in our studies or in our workplace, so that we might get ahead. It might be that we find ourselves spending more and more time devoted to the making of money or getting ourselves ready to make money rather than spending time with friends and family and even church. We might find ourselves comparing our situation in life with others and wishing that maybe we had their opportunities or even just wishing that we might have their car or their holidays or even their home. Envy is a very close companion of the love of money. And it can be very, very subtle. We know as Christians how easy it is to look at the the money loving people out there, outside of the church, and to look down upon them. But we also know how to dress up our greed and call it good stewardship. We know how to call our indulgences receiving God's blessings with thanksgiving. Greed is a very socially acceptable sin, even amongst Christians. In fact, it is the sin that we very often call a virtue. Now please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that money is evil. Paul never says that and so neither will I. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise stewards, we should. I'm not saying that we shouldn't receive and enjoy all of God's blessings with thankfulness and be grateful. I'm not saying that the stock market is of the devil. I'm still a little confused about crypto, but that's mostly because I don't know anything about it. I'm not trying to say that, you know, any of these things are, are wrong and evil in and of themselves. I'm just trying to say that it is possible for us to be gripped by greed... And to dress it up in Sunday best so it doesn't feel out of place here in church. I'm saying that the temptations that we face in this area of life are very subtle. And the decisions that we make in this area of life are very easy to justify. And so a very close examination of our hearts is required if we are to understand what our true motives really are. And so how do we examine our hearts? I'd like to suggest this to you. I'd like to suggest that we can discover what our hearts truly desire at the extremes of our emotions. The temptations are very subtle in this area of life. But actually our emotional reactions to those temptations aren't subtle at all. And so the moments in life where, where, where kind of something happens in your life and you react, not with a kind of a normal emotion, but where you react with something extreme, be it extreme anger or extreme fear or extreme anxiety or extreme sadness or even extreme joy, well, those moments, I think, can be very helpful to us. Those moments can show us, if we reflect upon them, what it is we truly desire, what it is that's just been threatened or what it is that's just been taken away or whatever it is. And so how did you feel when you didn't get into that course that you wanted to get into? What went through your mind when you were passed over for that job that you were hoping to get? And what did you talk to your friends about? What did you go and say to your friends when you know you were passed over for that promotion that you felt that you so rightly deserved? I'm sure you felt something. It's only natural to feel something. But was it not just anger but rage? Was it not just worry but irrational anxiety? Was it not just disappointment but deep depression? See, those, those moments of, of extreme emotional reaction, they're not our proudest moments. Absolutely not. But they are very useful to us. And I encourage you not to leave them unreflected upon. Because it's there that you'll find the true state of your soul. It's there that you may find that you have a, an oh-so-subtle love of money. Or even that you might find something else. That needs to come under the firm but gentle hand of Jesus Christ, who died for us. There is a danger in wanting to be rich. And so we must listen to Paul's words and examine our hearts very carefully. But sadly, that's only the first of the troubles with money that we face. There is a second one as well in this chapter and that's the trouble of being rich in verses 17 to 19 and it's a a little bit different as Paul explains. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I suspect that when a lot of us read that verse in, in verse 17, our instant reaction is to think that Paul, he he must be talking about other people. He must be talking about someone else. You know, I'm just a poor university student. Evan, if I came up to you and showed you my bank account balance, then there's no way at all that you would think that verses 17 and 18 and 19 apply to me. There is a a curious reluctance among us to admit that this second trouble might be ours. And I think that, that it has to do with this curious way we have of defining wealth Relatively. I'm not rich because I know people who are much richer than me. And of course, we all know people who are much richer than we are. Who doesn't know people like that? But I need to remind you that, you know, if you, if you live in this city, uh, if you got yourself to church here today, if you have opportunities to, to reach the kind of educational level that many of you have reached or are reaching for now, In fact, if you've even just had enough to eat in the last 24 hours and you know that you've got enough to eat for the next 24 hours, then on a world scale you are amongst the richest of the rich. Of course, yes, there are people who are richer than you, richer than us all. There are people who are obscenely richer than we are. But without a doubt, you and I are richer than billions of people in the world today and billions down through history. Historically and globally, we are, by any measure you choose to measure, we are loaded. And these verses apply to us. And so too do the dangers. Having wealth is a terrible spiritual burden. It tempts us to arrogance, says Paul. It tempts us not to trust in God, but instead to to trust in our wealth precisely because our wealth is such an easy alternative for us to trust in. Uh, after all, uh, wealth and money and prospects and edu- these things are, are, are so much more tangible to us than God. You know, I, I can look at my bank account. I, I can know exactly how much I am worth and I can know exactly what that can do for me, the security and the pleasure that that can bring me. It's such an easy alternative to trust in that than it is to trust in God. And yet here's something else that kind of really terrified me as I was thinking about this passage this week. Is it possible that we actually have both troubles? Is it possible that we are both already rich and yet we want to be richer? I say this because it, it scared me how relevant verses 17 to 19 felt to me as I was reading them this week. But yet so too did verses 9 and 10. They felt very relevant to me as well. I can't help but feel like we live in a very strange culture at a very strange time where even the very richest of people are left wanting more. We're almost caught in a trap. We, we have enough to tempt us not to trust in God and yet we don't have enough to be immune from envying others who are even richer than we are. We almost have the worst of both troubles. And what joy do we miss out on? We have so much. And yet, instead of being thankful and enjoying what God has given us, instead we worry about getting more. And so, in verse 17, Paul urges rich people like us not to trust in our wealth, but to set our hope on God, who is much more certain. It is the one who richly provides us with all things to enjoy our God. And He is the one who has provided us with everything. And so, to call on us to to trust and to thank and to love the provider, rather than to make an idol out of the very things that He has provided, is the most sensible thing in the world. And these words aren't here to confine us to either poverty or to unhappiness. They're here to, to, to remind us that it's absolute foolishness to find greater certainty in a thing than in the one who provided the thing in the first place. What is wealth other than just another good gift given to us by our Heavenly Father? And of course, if you really believe that God was the one who richly provides everything for our enjoyment, then we would absolutely do verses 18 and 19 as well. We would do what is good, be rich in good deeds, we would be generous and willing to share. Willing to share the good gift of God that He shared with us, so that others might enjoy it with us. And here in a chapter that's about money, verse 18 is actually the only verse in the whole chapter that addresses our spending habits, and it says, be generous. Be generous and share so that others too can enjoy the good gifts that God gives. Don't give enough just to kind of make the middle class guilt go away. Give to genuinely enrich others. Give like the Lord Jesus who in his great riches he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And if we do that, says Paul, then we will store up for ourselves not riches and wealth here, which are so easily lost and destroyed. But we store up for ourselves riches in the age to come, in verse 19. And therefore we'll take hold of the the life that is really life, the better life, even the richer life, than a life lived pursuing earthly riches. The true wealth of generous living, of enjoying all that God has given us, And pursuing godliness with contentment. Something that we'll live on even into the age to come. There is a trouble with wanting to be rich. And there is a trouble with being rich. And it's very possible that we have both. And so let's finish up. What's the solution to both of these troubles? And I think Paul's really been hinting at it all throughout the chapter, but at the heart of this chapter, verses 11 to 16, I think he really spells it out for us. He really gives us the charge of a very different way of living. Verse 11, but you man of God flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable lights, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. See, Paul can't help himself, can he? Here is the true and certain alternative to a life spent pursuing worldly riches. Here is the life that will steer us and even steer our church away from the dangers of wealth. Here is what makes godliness with contentment great gain in verse 6. Here is what makes wealth so uncertain compared with the true certainty of hoping in God. In verse 17. See, if Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, if eternal life really is now in our grasp, when we too make the good confession, the good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus Christ is coming again, this time not to be judged for our sins, but this time to be the judge, to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who only has immortality. And if we are now called to follow Jesus, to be godly, to live our lives more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ by His power and His mercy, well, that changes everything. That redefines riches and what true wealth really is because that makes it clear what really lasts, makes it clear the only thing that really lasts and it is not our gold It is our godliness. Earthly treasure passes away. But the treasure of godliness lasts forever. And so Paul commands Timothy in the strongest possible terms, flee, run away from the love of money and the temptation that comes with wealth. And instead pursue godliness and righteousness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Paul urges Timothy that his life's ambition should not be the gathering of greater and greater material wealth, but to gather godliness and Christ-likeness, to gather that which truly lasts. And he even goes so far as to call it a fight, uh, that we must fight the good fight, the, the, we must fight the, the week-in and the, the week-out testimony of our lives and of our speech to Jesus. And to fight the good fight without spot or blame until the day when the Lord Jesus returns. And that is what we have been called to. That is the fight, that is the the great struggle of our lives. And this fight, uh, to change metaphors on you if you'll you'll let me, it's not a sprint but a marathon. It's not a, a quick dash to the end. It's a marathon, it's a long, slow, hard slog over days and weeks and years and decades. And there will be many dangers, many obstacles in your path. There will be dangers from outside of you, false teachers who need to be guarded against. But the greatest danger will come from inside of you because it's much easier to be seduced by the love of money than it is to fight the good fight. It's much easier to live as rich people who want even more than it is to keep this charge without spot or blemish until the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And many of you here now, you're you're just on the cusp of your working lives. You're just on the very first cusp of the, the first moment of Making money, the the biggest moment of making money that you've ever yet had in your lives. And you have hard decisions ahead of you. Hard decisions to make really about what is the standard of living that you would like to live with and how will you remain generous whilst living in that way? And do you expect your your standard of living to, to rise over time as your income rises? Or do you expect your generosity to rise as your income rises, not your standard of living. And many of you will have great struggles in in this as well. Some of you will face temptations as you begin to realise that you'll never be able to match the standard of living that your parents have provided for you and still remain generous as God commands. And that'll be a great temptation to you. Others of you, your test will be in a completely different direction. You're about to realize that you're going to be able to earn enough to live much better than your parents were ever able to provide for you as you grew up. But whatever the tests are that you face, these tests will show whether or not you truly love Jesus more than you love money. You'll each face your own sets of temptations and tests. You'll each have to fight your own battles. But Paul reminds us that we do not fight alone. That we are always part of a church. And Paul reminds us that we have God on our side. And that God in whose sight we fight the good fight is the mighty God of all glory who is unmatched in power and majesty by anything else in the universe. And that reminds us that the fight is worth fighting. That reminds us that the reward of continuing to do battle far outstrips any cost along the way. And it reminds us that the resources at our disposal as we seek to fight the good fight, they are, like our God, limitless. And so in the end, even though, yes, I I do think, actually, 1 Timothy chapter 6 goes a long, long way to proving that Professor Andrew Walls was probably right about how the centre of world Christianity moves around. And how the gospel moves away from wealth and power. Even though he might be right, 1 Timothy 6 also reminds us that we do not stop fighting. We do not stop fighting to keep the gospel promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord at the center of our hearts. We do not stop fighting to keep the gospel promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord at the center of our church. And we do not stop fighting because by the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus, this is a fight we can fight. And this is a fight we must fight. Not just for ourselves, but actually even for the world around us as as they look on. And as they see us, they need us to fight this fight because how else are they going to hear of the gospel message of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? We mustn't be fooled. There are people living their lives around us without God and they look and sound like they're doing just fine. But if what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 6 is right then actually they are pierced with many griefs and their wealth and their love of wealth will lead them into ruin and destruction if we don't fight the fight for them and if we don't proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them so that all of us might take hold of the life that is truly life the eternal life that Christ Jesus died to bring us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came and that he died and that he rose again. And so now, Lord, in him, we can have eternal life. And that that redefines riches. That totally changes our approach to our life here and now. That no longer can our lives be about the accumulation of more and more wealth, but now instead, it must be about the pursuit of godliness. And we thank you, Lord, that in this fight that we must fight, you are with us. That you, by your mighty power and mercy, give us strength. Help us, Lord, so that when the Lord Jesus Christ does return, we might be spotless. We might be blameless. That he might find us still fighting. Still living lives that proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that through us you might save many and that all of us together might take hold of the life that is truly life, the life eternal. (coughs) Amen.